Hello, this is Matt Hale. Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly talk show. And it's based on an issue for June 2013 of the magazine. And I'm joined in the studio by two people. And we have another person on the phone. Now, in the studio, I have Bob Dickinson, who is a writer and broadcaster based in Manchester. Hello, Bob. How do you do? You can hear me. <coughs> Great. And also I'm joined in the studio by George Vasey, who's a curator and writer based in London. Hello, George. Hi, Matt. Good to have you here. And it's George's first time, and Bob's second time on the programme, but first in the studio. And hello, Jen, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I feel um, like I'm on Eurovision. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, hope you've got a nice glass of wine beside you. I do, I uh, do. Jolly good. And um, Jen is um, a freelance writer and lecturer and organiser of public programmes for Folkestone Triennial, amongst many other things, including being a mother. And, and Jen, I mention that obviously because it is relevant uh, to the feature yeah. you've written in the June issue of Art Monthly. Um, just as it happens, you're on the line really aren't you not in the studio because um you are in need of staying at home because you do have a child and you are talking regretfully really to three men in the studio um th wh why don't you just fill us in on what your feature in the june issue is about i mean we, we called it 50 50 what, what, what would you say it was actually concerned with um well i think 50 50 is a great title because ultimately that's what we're asking for isn't it 50 50 representation um, of women, men in in the art world. At the moment, um, the figure that keeps coming back is 31%. I don't know where, why this this figure keeps coming back, but in three um, three statistics I got back from uh, the East London Fawcett uh, group who, who just conducted a major audit of uh, commercial and non-commercial galleries over the last year, they kept coming back to this 31% visibility of women. Um, for example, that in uh, all the commercial galleries that they audited, um, only 31% of the artists they represented were women. Um, of all the non-commercial shows, that like all the non-commercial shows that are listed in the new exhibitions of Contemporary Art Guide, which is quite a lot, um, only 31% of those were women, not including group shows. That means all the rest were men. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty woeful. Uh, I was quite surprised. Maybe I thought... Um, I was going to write a fairly cynical article, but I actually felt more depressed having, having looked at the facts myself. Um, so yes, I was looking at representation and visibility of women in the art world. It's a, a feature that I think that I've been building for a while in my head, um, and I felt I ought to write it at some point. I mean, I mean um, d does it come from, from presumably uh, quite a bit of your personal experience as, as a, a woman working in the visual arts? Of course. I mean, of course it would have to. Um, it comes from, well, my experience, but also uh, a lot of other people's experiences. And, you know, I, I list a few anecdotes, and they're pretty shocking, in the article. Um, and obviously, for legal reasons, I couldn't name the people involved and name this those organisations or um, that behave particularly badly, which is sad <laughs> because it would be it would be very interesting to be able to name and shame. But um, I I, um, I got uh, tired of just hearing anecdotes from friends about um, either being fired for being pregnant or not being made to feel welcome with their children or um, as artists struggling to make it in the art world or not having the confidence. And, you know, I needed to get behind the anecdotes and, and look at some facts and try and figure out 
what can be done and how this sits within our society in Britain in general. Um, and obviously these experiences are ones that are being had by uh, women and, let's say, uh, parents um, across across Britain. But it's particularly, um, it's particularly bad in the art world where a lot of um, uh, organisations and individuals feel somehow that they're above the law. Um, and, and so there's a sort of feeling that people can get away with it. Yeah, you, you cite the um, economic situation now, meaning that perhaps it's actually easier, in a sense, for people, particularly in, in fr- those people employed as freelancers or self-employed workers and, and artists who are not really institutions, you know, perhaps easier for them to be le- you know, more dismissive of, of staff or treat them because of the, the fact that... that but, but also there must be a huge difference between institutional employment... And say private enterprise employment. Again, you would have thought so, but um, I, I came to this thinking there would be a great divide between uh, commercial and non-commercial spaces. Um, but I just don't think that's true in the art world. I think that some of the non-commercial spaces behave just as badly. Um, maybe not the really large ones. I don't really know so much about them. Um, but in my experience, some of the small to medium-sized so-called. Uh, public institutions or institutions at least that are uh, subsidised by um, Arts Council England, for example, have behaved badly in the past. So I don't think they're exempt. And I do think there is even more vulnerability for freelancers in the art world. And we know how vulnerable workers in the art world are anyway. Um, And I think that's just even worse if you also happen to be a parent who is struggling financially and struggling to find the time and space to make work or write or lecture or do any number of freelance activities within the art world. You mentioned one one thing that happened to you without saying specifically mm-hmm. where, but it was about working in the evenings and there was a presumption. Did I get this right? That because you had a baby, that it, I was pre, it, was, it, was, yeah, it was presumed you wouldn't... And this was, for one, it was you know, away in the future and, and to be honest, that was just... That was for me to decide whether I could or couldn't. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, was taken aback that just that my sort of professionalism would be questioned um, when I hadn't brought up any. So it sort, of, it sort of brought, you were basically finding a, a, there was an attitude. So it's not just the practice of the yeah, fact that occurs. It's actually there's know, an attitude which is wrong. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of undermining confidence. And that's. I mean, it is hard to to deal with. It's hard to find out exactly what happens to women's confidence somewhere along the line, which means that they're not getting those top jobs um, and they're not getting um, uh, representation by galleries. Um, because I think, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to pull apart exactly what is happening and why, why women are so underrepresented when they make up way more than half an hour of graduates of arts and design um, colleges. So something is happening. Um, the Arts Council, when I asked them, said that they thought it was uh, a mid-career issue to do with childcare, which is why I spent quite a lot of time talking about it, because if the Arts Council admits that the reason the women are not getting to, to the top jobs, and by which by this I also um, mean... Um, are not represented on boards because I did quite a bit of research into um, into representation of women on arts boards because I figured that um, 
since there are a lot of women on art boards, um, surely... You, you would feed down into it what, would, what they it exhibited. Would feed down into policies. Yeah, um, but when you say art boards, we talk just so for, for some listeners who may not know, I mean, a gallery basically often, especially if it's a publicly funded space, has a board of trustees which right. are above the director, really, or the director has to work to, yeah. and they should, in a sense, be making sure that the policy and the, what the director actually does in employing people and exhibiting artists would, would be. Uh, you know, a good policy. So if it's balanced, it's 50 women and 50% men, you would hope it would, as you say, affect what they do, but you you think it doesn't? Well, I th- no, I do think it, it really helps. Um, and I think London institutions are getting a lot better. I mean, there was much, to, to my um, happy surprise, most London public institutions are pretty good and had approximately 50-50 men, women on their board. You said it in London? Yeah. So in the regions, it's... Right. I I picked a handful, I did a straw poll of regional or public organisations that I thought, you know, I think of when I think of regional organisations. I picked a few um, well-known organisations and my results were terrible. I mean, they were really skewed towards men. So I do think that has a big effect and I think, well, as with all... Boards of uh, all boards across Great Britain. I think our government and our general attitude is uh, that if we just leave it and just sort of offer guidelines, it will improve. It's just not. It's not working. It, yeah, I think. It, I think there needs to be a much heavier push towards um, equality on boards, especially in the art world. When, as we know, you know, there really are. It's not like there aren't enough women around. I mean, it's just boring to have to say to people, you know. And are there not enough women? Can you not find any women to put on your boards? And it's amazing to me. Yes. But I think Bob's got a question for you. Yeah, hi, Bob. Hi. How are you doing? Hi, Jen. I'm okay. Um, I'm just wondering, I I don't know whether you you can, you, you know anything about this but uh, do, do, do you think that, how do you think the situation in Britain compares to other countries where, do, do you know anything about whether... Um, well I'm uh, I know a fair amount about, or anecdotally at least, about the situations in uh, France and Belgium so I'm mm. half French and um, my husband's family are half, half Belgian and um, we have lots of family with children and life is totally different, I mean they just don't simply don't talk about these issues in relation to work. Um, women have uh, children earlier, they have more children, because it's much better set up. There's huge uh, confidence in state support for parents. Um, Do you mean ch- childcare, childcare, for, for instance? Yeah. There's an expectation that women will go back to, to work. Um, there isn't such a big deal about this choice thing, will you, won't you. There's just an expectation that you will you will resume your your adult life and that you will be supported to do so. Now, you can still take, you know, maternity leave, um, but um, but there's not a sense that once you've had a child, you, you have to make choices which will um, impede your professional life. I mean, it's just, it's just simply not true. In, in you don't have this confidence issue that people will undermine them constantly. And in terms of creches, I mean, you, you mentioned, don't you, that there's a possibility of, is it the Tate Modern may have one, or is it, I can't, no, well, it was it, that they're it not? Would, um, it would be a great thing if they would. They, um, I asked several public institutions whether they would consider a, um, a family, a, a kind of public creche for families to drop off their children. As, as, this is for visitors, are you thinking, this or are you thinking for, work, for workers as well? I mean, there's also a separate issue of whether they, they would have one for their staff, but... Um, this is for visitors, 
um, and none of them were interested. Um, but this is a problem because actually um, the, all the education policies are geared towards family inclusive learning, which means that as parents you you're, you have to be with your child all the time doing children's activities, which is lovely and fun if you're just doing it on a Saturday afternoon. But if you're uh, an artist, a freelancer, someone who needs to see an exhibition for professional reasons, it just becomes impossible. You can't watch a long video with a with a with a three year old. Well, yeah. If it's an hour long, they won't. Exactly. Well, they'll go it's to sleep if you're happen, lucky. Which with lots of videos, they probably will because they're so bad. But, but no. But you, 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 practically speaking, you're absolutely right. So therefore, you need somewhere. And and I don't see why. For example, I was in um, Turner Contemporary last weekend doing a great show, and um, luckily my child was asleep, so it was fine. But anyway, we looked through into the. Uh, education room which was buzzing with kids doing all sorts of activities and our thoughts were simply why can't the kids just enjoy doing these activities without their parents so the parents can see the show and yes. it just seems mind-boggling to me that you require the parents to be there while the kids are doing their arts and crafts in the past you know i i have friends who tell me about you know I, I, i'm sure it's been this you know um uh just, just probably all um nostalgia as well but um in the past in the 70s and 80s you could just drop off your child for example at the ica and they'd go off and do things so parents could go and watch a film and then you know so it has like been the case made. in the past that we've got it right and we've dropped it this well, is astounding yes, isn't it because we've become so precious yes um and so well one it's expensive also we've become you know everything no one wants to take responsibility for anything. Yes, the, 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 the litigious kind of side of, of, of life, is it means that it has to be done incredibly well. Exactly. Otherwise there's no reason why not. For example, I'm going on holiday to a nice country hotel in some Suffolk or somewhere, which I saw advertised for cheap. Um, anyway, I, I went for it because they said they have a free crash for children. Yeah. And if a hotel can organise that, and I can stick my child in for two hours a day while I go for a swim... Yes, it can't be that hard, can it? It can't be that hard. No, no. It just, it just... I mean, when you think about the education budget, surely a small amount could be directed towards this. Yeah. Did the Whitechapel did something... Um, was it crib notes? What, what, yes, what was the problem? Right. What was the problem? Um, it was it was an individual who came to Whitechapel with this idea, um, a, a lady called Kim Dillon, who's a writer and at the time I think was a PhD candidate. Um, and she felt that um, she wanted to organise something which w- would mean that parents felt more welcome in galleries and that they could also uh, have their intellectual needs catered for um, aside from these kind of family-friendly events. So she, she asked the White Supplers if they would put on curator-led tours um, for people, specifically with young babies, um, so that they could let their babies cry or something. Um, and, and at the same time, go and see the show. Um, the issue with that um, is that they, uh, for the most part, seem to put this on uh, before um, before the gallery is open, which means they have to charge for the event, which seems crazy when you've got an education budget. You should, you know, I don't understand why it can't be part of the education budget. Um, and also, I don't understand why it can't be just part of the general, you know, public day. I don't understand, or I have a problem with women being, um, or parents being ghettoised into not being visible, um, and and being, you know, events of ending uh, run outside of normal hours. I um, mean, because for the most part, 
uh, our parents, and particularly women, uh, the thing that strikes me is is this fear of invisibility once they have children, that they they need to be part of things. They can't be isolated. That's where your confidence really goes. Yeah, it, it, it must make returning even harder. Exactly. If, if you can't even go out to a gallery just yeah, to look at you're it. you're not being made to feel welcome. Yes. Um, you're, you're having special events put on for you so that you should go to those outside of yeah. your normal hours. And anyone with a, you know, I think you have to divide, I mean, I have only a young child, so I'm sure there are other divisions, but it strikes me already at this stage that um, when you have a young baby, you really can take them anywhere and you should be made to feel welcome anywhere. And that means talks, conferences, press trips, um, anything. There's nothing you can't take them to. Yes. They feed and sleep and... Um, of course. They, you know, they're portable. And, and when children get a little bit older... And then when they get older, that's when you want crisis. Yes. Or, or, and when they're even older than that, then... Then, then they can be doing You want to take them then... You. I mean, why would they need to... You know, they must be... You know, they want to, to get on and, and... And I'm sure they enjoy engaging with art activities. They just don't need to be with their parents all the time. Yeah. I mean, they can be as a leisure activity, but that's not the same thing as artists and writers, I know, trying to see exhibitions with children in tow. Because they can't afford childcare, it's not for fun that they do this. It's not because they want to always uh, kind of engage their child with contemporary art for a young age. They just simply have no choice. They have to take them with, with them. I mean, I've taken my child on numerous press trips and had raised eyebrows, but, you know, one, you, know, you do what you can. And also, you know, I was a bit naughty and took her on, on things where people really weren't expecting to see And they had to deal with it. Huh? <laughs> and they had to deal with it. And they had to deal with it. Can, can, I think George might say something. Yeah, hi, George. Hi, hi Jen. Um, Sorry for my to long add. rant. <laughs> no, no, it's fine, it's fine. You're doing well. We'll, we'll probably finish fairly soon with you, but you're doing great. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 thank you so much. I didn't mean that to sound quite like that. Um, I just wanted to add to that, really. Um, and talking to people in response to your kind of article um, I know a few people that are doing PhDs at the moment um, and it's something that's something you haven't really touched upon is the kind of uh, academia um, people that are committed to research and getting um, uh, tax free grants because uh, my understanding is that um, you can claim uh, tax back um, in terms of uh, getting cheaper childcare um, so a lot of people doing their PhDs at the moment, like young mums, uh, really struggling to, to kind of uh, commit to childcare and doing their research at the same time. So I think these are kind of broad... Well, it, it is a very complex system, mm. this country, so it's possible that some people don't know what they're entitled to. Mm. That's one thing. Um, on the other hand, um, tax credits are for, I can't remember the exact threshold, but it's not very high. So you could be, like I am, two, two freelance parents, working in the art world, not earning a huge amount and not eligible for tax credits, which means that you pay the full whack of childcare, which, I mean, I, I gave one example of, uh, of, uh, of a nursery uh, at Goldsmith, which charges, I think it was 55 pounds. Yeah, exactly. Did you mean that per day? Yes. That's why people don't re- realise, I think, until you... Have children just how expensive it is, and you have to wait until they're three before you get three hours. I mean, that's nearly, nearly three hundred pounds a week if you did it five days a week. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the issue is that um, it's, arts it's professionals often fall. So a lot of people just simply can't afford it and take their children everywhere. Um, as as one of my um, creative friends says, I mean, I think the public institutions policy not to have creches is is a class issue because it means that wealthy people can leave their children with, um, you know, at nurseries and nannies and the poor freelancers or, or people who are not wealthy 
uh, are um, at a major disadvantage. Can George say something else? Yes, please. Go. Um, <laughs> I think I think your I think your article is very useful because it because it, it posits very particular practical things that can be improved, um, and um, I think that's. Say something else, but no, I that's right. Well, oh, I was going to ask you one thing as well, Jen. Was um, obviously we're really talking about a woman's situation, are we? But you, it's presumably, well, I but I it does also. Mean, I mean, I do mean it's parents, parents, but I do think that the majority of childcare still is the, the responsibility still lies. In reality, it's still with women. Not, not in my case, and not in some friends' case. But no. when I sat in a meeting, I, I should mention at this point. Um, my friend, the artist Martina Milani, who, who um, started a group called Enemies of Good Art, which is very inspirational for my article. And she's been campaigning for, um, well, against prejudices against art parents. Um, but in the first meeting that she held, she's been holding public meetings in, um, uh, in, in various institution, public art institutions. In the first meeting, which I chaired, actually, um, she asked everyone in the room... Um, I can't remember how many there were of us, maybe 20 or so, who, who uh, took responsibility for the childcare within their household. And there was only one person who said they shared equally with their partner. Yeah. So, and, and they were our parents. This is supposed to be the kind of liberal yeah, the lib- you know, say, sector. So we have, we have been talking about, a lib- as you say, the liberal art world. As it, as it, and it, in a way, perhaps it's a terrible reflection of a society because if the, if the liberal people who are supposed to be well, exactly. more likely to support it are not achieving it well, then it, there's not a lot of hope. But on the other hand, it's, it's got to start somewhere. So it, it's it got should... to start somewhere. And it might have, you know, why not be yes, the art world? Absolutely. Why not be exemplary? You know, and yeah. I think, you know, there are signs of things changing. And in a way, I wanted to write this at a point where I think things are changing because it's precisely at that moment where you have to keep pushing. And... Um, I think I think there are uh, government is making some changes to childcare, some of them bad, some of them good, um, and I think things are changing in the art world. The, the issue around boards is changing, and I think regionally it will be slow, but it will change. Um, and I think the arts council will probably be less um, less uh, uh, meek about uh, their equality policy. They should be a bit more hands on about it. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think they simply shouldn't fund people where funds institutions where boards are all men are all men I, mean, I think you said the icon go didn't you um, in your, in your picture <laughs> you can you wrote it, you wrote it in your article yeah, you can so say it on I, air I, I, if you want to be in my article yeah six, six men and no women would be six, yeah. listen yeah. Jen yeah. So just so the other guys get a, get, a, get a go on their pieces of writing as well yeah, we'll, we'll, you, we'll say goodbye I think but listen okay, it's been well, very good of you to come lovely on lovely to be with you and yeah I mean I, I think um I think there's lots left to discuss, and I think yes. maybe I'll be inspired to write a part two. I think there's lots to do with art schools, which yeah. um, I feel I haven't touched on. No, education, the whole education world. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, now I feel like there's, um, friends have started hinting that, that there's a kind of whole institutional sexism in art schools that, I, that we need to deal with, which means that um, even though there are more women than men graduating, that younger um the artists being picked up by galleries are still tending to be um, the men. And that's to do with the confidence issue that galleries, especially in straightened times, want to pick people who look like they've got the confidence to continue their careers and have a strong, strong sense of themselves. Um, and also, you know, you have a sense that 
the kind of artists who are being put forward by tutors to various things, to prizes, to residences, maybe the men. I don't know, but it, I think it would explain why so few women are being picked up. So that might be another... Sounds good. Another <laughs> part two. Okay. But um, I wish you a happy uh, discussion. Thank you very much. I'm sorry you can't join us. It's just probably not very practical for you, I understand. All right. Tremendous. Bye. Good evening. See you again. Thanks. Okay, we're going to move on now um, to... Uh, Bob Dickinson's review of Corner House. Before we do, though, very quickly, I just wanted to say that as um, Art Monthly offers a fantastic subscription for £29, which is a saving of £17 on the cover price, or also you can get an £8 digital recurring subscription. In other words, it's £8 for every three months. And you can find that on our website at www.artmonthly.buy slash buy, I think it is. <laughs> These programmes are available as podcasts on the same website at slash events. So there's all things over 40 programmes now you can listen to. But we're now going to talk to Bob about um, Anguish and Enthusiasm, Bob. That's the title of the exhibition. What do you do with your revolution once you've got it was the sort of subtitle. And it's, um, I mean, just reading from your, a tiny part from your review, it's basically a show which asks questions, what has changed and what is the subsequent importance of revolutionary movement if it has an impact but fails to overthrow a government? So that that was one of the questions that the curators had in mind. It was curated by Sarah Perks and Declan Clark in in Manchester, which is where you've come down from, especially on the train today. So thank you so much for doing that. It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. Yes, it's... um, uh, Last year, Corner House in Manchester had an exhibition called Subversion, which was um, about contemporary art from from Arab countries, which reflected... um, quite extensively or, or, or the the ongoing Arab Spring. And this is really a kind of follow-up to that exhibition in some ways, although it uh, doesn't focus on, on Arab art. Not so specific. Not specifically, but it does uh, look at revolutionary experience in, 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 a, in a variety of countries. It's not a documentary uh, taking a part of, of, of revolution, post-revolution and so on, in, in that kind of explanatory, historical way. It is a, a, a number of uh, contemporary artists, mostly contemporary artists, um, meditating on, on, on revolution, sometimes from personal experience and sometimes from, from outside. Really? So, so and, personal experience of, of actual revolution? Well, I mean, it's hard for someone as safely embedded in London as I am I know, to even well, imagine it, what that could possibly be like. I mean, really? Uh, I think it is difficult for, for people in, in Britain to, th- to, to understand what revolution yes, I mean, is it's, like, because we haven't had one since the 17th no. century. And, and, and we, do, we do use the word yeah. quite lightly sometimes. Yes. I, mean, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I was actually found a CD um, by, by a guy called Alan Dunn, and it, it was called something, it was based upon revolution the idea of and people were playing music and basically they mostly just repeated the word yeah they didn't really seem to have any idea what it was at all well Which, were, i mean there have been times in you know recent history relatively recent history where, where revolution has has been you know in the air um, in the late 60s for instance and there, there are references references to um the the failed revolutionary movements in in europe in in the 1960s particularly by the irish artist ian mcteague who uh, has has a couple of um, actual size photographs of um, uh, notice boards from universities, one in uh, Belfast and one in Berlin, which were associated w- with 
revolutionary movements in in the late 60s in, in the case of Belfast it, it, it fed into them the movements that that that, that uh, caused political instability in Northern Ireland in the in the 70s and 80s and so on um, but for the most part these are these there are basically three big themes to this exhibition one is the the theme of of the wreckage of revolution and and what gets left out once the revolution starts and gets going and lots of things get left behind lots of the original impetus for revolution are left behind like the good the good things yes sometimes good things yes second big theme is to do with failed revolutions you know you once you take the step of revolution you can't really go back but what if you lose what if you don't overcome uh, the government you're you're rebelling against and the third big theme seems to be um, if you're victorious if you win if you beat the the beat the state uh, how do you hold on to your re- revolutionary credibility and in some cases it means of course you purge you, the people you don't really like in order to stay pure and I, I, so there are some fascinating questions arising from all this, and it does. But it does take an awfully long time to get around the, you know, to to to, to, to squeeze that out to, of the show. Yes, because there's a lot. A lot of it's on film. Right. So it's time-based work. Yeah. Quite a lot of it. I mean, I know that there was one performance, wasn't there, done by um, uh, Sarah Pierce. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> Sarah Pierce is an Irish American artist who has done a piece called Gag. It's the first piece you see when you go into the first gallery. And if you go in there, it's uh, it looks like uh, a, s- a set of islands uh, laid out on the gallery floor, and in each island there is a pile of very tidily gathered up rubbish, uh, c- uh, bits of wood, bits of plastic packaging, uh, masking tape, uh, and so on. And in fact, that it is uh, wreckage. It is rubbish from its installation rubbish that was tidied together and, and installed as the exhibit. And, and Sarah Pierce is interested in the idea of archiving uh, what, uh, the stuff that during any kind of process gets left out. And uh, during on the opening night, there was, as you say, there was a, a performance involving actors uh, uh, quoting from texts by people like Wittgenstein and Kafka uh, and um, they they were performing uh, sort of choreographed routines with these quotes and um, these uh, very strange rictus smiles that they kept adopting and uh, I'm still not quite sure what Sarah Pierce was getting at with the performance it struck me that she was uh, uh, perhaps uh, trying to evoke the way in which um, uh, revolution is a kind of uh, does end up being in some cases a kind of spectacular performance, and that was that is also referred to in one of the films from Angola, which I could talk about in a minute if you like. But um, uh, yeah, so, so this idea of, but certainly very powerfully, she uh, evokes this idea of the wreckage of revolution and the way that certain. Uh, Elements of, of the, the, that cause the explosion in a revolution are then put away very tidily, and uh, you're not supposed to think about them. 
Uh, the detritus, and, and yes. uh, uh, particularly in that case, by the sound of it. And, yeah. and what's the what about the Angola thing? Well, this uh, this film uh, is by um, a, 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 an artist from uh, who's born in French uh, Guiana, who is called. Uh, please excuse my pronunciation, but Mathieu Clayebe Abonenk, and uh, it's a film about um, Angola. Uh, in in which um, uh, it's called it is okay it is okay we go on we go on we go on. it is okay it is okay we go on yeah uh, and um, it's an examination of the way this uh, what happened in Angola was there was a, a twenty five over a, a civil war that followed the revolution that went and the civil war was uh, a multi-sided uh, affair that went on for over 25 years involving um, various revolutionary groups, uh, including the MPLA and UNITA, uh, and there was overseas um, interference from the Soviet Union and Cuba and South Africa. So it was a very brutal and horrible uh, civil war. And in this film, uh, Abonenk uh, takes a character... Uh, into Angola and uh, we see a play involving children who are reenacting parts representing the different revolutionary and counter-revolutionary armies that, that who were operating in the Civil War and these children are being instructed to uh, deliver revolutionary um, slogans with passion and uh, at the same time, we're listening to tape recordings of people who, uh, or interviews with people who were actually in the war. And then at the end of the film, there is a kind of uh, conference, academic conference, where this character, who is uh, European in appearance, Portuguese, is talking to African Angolans in, in, about, a, in the audience. Yes. It's in a lecture theatre, isn't yes. it? I, I saw that. Being, yes. being, and, and it's a fascinating dialogue between the two sides. It's, I think it's really fascinating dialogue because yeah. they ask him questions. They really question his yeah. authority, don't they? Yes. Uh, he's saying to them, as he's interested in researching the truth about the revolution, and he's saying, you know, we don't know the stories. We need to tell the original stories, and I'm here to try and tease those stories out and find out about them. And people in the audience are saying... The problem is about that is that you, you're, you will have the final word. You're going to be tell, telling the story, and what we're getting is a form of colonialism. Yes, yes. Uh, and so it's well meant by him, yeah, supposedly, yeah, yes, yeah. but he'll misrepresent them. Yes, exactly. Fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting film that, that, that doesn't come up with e easy answers. No, but that's good, yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, that's a good thing. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, this subject is not simple, is it? <laughs> it isn't sim it's, it isn't simple i mean the 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 um um uh, the, the 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 whole uh, experience of revolution is 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 often uh fraught with difficulties because of what follows on because it because it often involves civil wars and purges and uh, persecutions and um uh, and at the the uh, the, uh, the other end of the experience of revolution uh, of count of post revolution you have this uh, in the the final gallery, there are these. There's this extraordinary film that was made by Antonioni uh, in the early 1970s uh, in China. Um, in, uh, secret, in secret, was it made? No, he was he was commissioned by the Chinese government to go and make a documentary about 
about life in in China, which I thought was extraordinary. It is really. It's I can't. Uh, you wonder I how on earth it occurred. It is. You do wonder because it was com- condemned by Mao Zedong and his wife uh, uh, Yang Xing afterwards and banned. Uh, and uh, but it's a fast, it's 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 two hundred and twenty minutes long, and it, it is very. Um, it, it's really interesting to see it now because you're looking at Chinese communist society at the that where where the cultural revolution of the nineteen sixties is still kind of powerfully in the air, and you're seeing a society. You see, you're seeing a society where. Uh, uh, um, you know, people mostly wear blue uh, suits or military outfits. There's, everybody dresses the same. Um, it's it's China before the uh, it, they liberalised. You know, the China that we we're dealing with now, the most powerful but, but it's potential post, economy post in the world. Post, post another revolution. Yeah, it's that, post. It's post that the before. Culture, yes. There was this this cultural revolution in the sixties where yes, where so again, as I say, it was that they they put there was an inter, there were internal purges and and millions of people died. Yes, and so there's uh, an evidence. So that film is there. Do you think it's a sort of evidence of revolution from another angle? I think it's 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 post revolution. Uh, it, it's it's reflecting on the way China went through this post revolution of the cultural revolution of the sixties and 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 the document itself. Antonioni's film uh, uh, it was itself kind of banned by 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 Mao, and um, that's just a, a rich, complicated scenario in a way. Isn't yes, it? yes, and it, uh, and it's just an extraordinary thing. So, well, I mean, you can't. I can understand why it was banned. I mean, how uh, it's just simply the way he uses he he directs the camera, you know, up right into people's faces. These people have probably never may never have seen European before, or a camera, maybe. Yeah, possibly. It's, and they it's react, you see them reacting. Do you, you see them reacting. Yes, you do. Yeah. And um, uh, it, it's yes, fascinating to watch. Um, and uh, also in that area of the gallery, there is a there are some very interesting films by also new commissions from Corner House by uh, the German artist Andreas Bunter, who is uh, who's done these these films, uh, two films. One's called Low Pressure, and the other one's called Artificial Diamonds, and they are about. Um, well, the artificial diamond one is—they're they're set in East. They're, they're in the they're, they're films, very very beautifully made films that are filmed in in, in institutions and factories in in for, in what was East Germany. And one of these places is a, is a is an artificial diamond factory, and the other one is a, a low uh, a, a pressurized um, installation where athletes went to prepare for high level altitudes. We're going to have to move on because of time, and I apologise to you for that. But thank you so much for that <laughs> roundup. We're going to quickly talk about um, George's roundup of, of four galleries um, in London. Uh, first one you did was Raven Row, Pedrick, was it, George? Yeah, Pedrick Timoney. Just, just, just try and just tell us your experience of going around four galleries and then having to write a review about it. Really, I mean that's that's quite an undertaking. <laughs> to condense four shows into one one review in Art Monthly, not easy. It's, it's difficult to kind of go into too much depth with Pedrick Timoney. Uh, no. Essentially, it's a mid-career retrospective uh, consisting twenty years of work. twenty years yeah. of painting. Yeah, so there's about 150 paintings at Raven Row. Um, and uh, Pedrick Timoney goes through every conceivable painterly style, really, as well as photography and sculpture. So it's very difficult to kind of um, talk about a typical uh, Timoney painting. Um, I saw the show twice. Um, when I first saw it, um, it seemed to me that 
that there was something in the middle of all of the work that was really about evasion in some way. So it was um, a kind of inability to kind of take um, a position as an artist, uh, kind of, as I say in the article. What, kind you mean, of, what, settling in one kind of way of painting, do you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the very difficult thing to kind of... It wasn't just the eclecticism of the way that he was painting, but sometimes he'd approach the canvas with a kind of uh, sense of authenticity or very engaged kind of lyrical... Uh, type of abstraction and then sometimes he'd paint which felt much more kind of off the cuff or ironic um, so I saw the show again um, and then I thought well maybe um, I spent much more time with it and then I thought well, maybe that's kind of a kind of a diaristic attempt so going into the studio and trying to sort of be com- surprised by what he's doing and yes yeah, so it's more about so very much about the process and in his enjoyment of making yeah there's yes, a kind of um, yes. as i say the alchemical alchemical kind of uh, interest i think in his work about the ability to make something and still be surprised by it yes no, 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 got got to jump on a bit Karen yeah. Ruggerberg at pier yeah, yeah. again someone making things and a yeah. sort of process i saw that show i thought you know she's she's been uh, casting uh, concrete uh, things yeah, for a number of years now, I've seen a num- I've seen a few of her solo shows. Probably the first at Tate Britain uh, about six years was ago. That art now, wasn't it was. It? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it worked well in the peer space. It was quite a pared back show, um, but I think basically Ruggerbeer's practice is about taking uh, a kind of alienated material, concrete um, from an urban environment, and then pairing it with uh, more intimate or, or uh, materials that are related to the body. So often there'll be bits of cloth or clothing in the concrete. And she sort of uses her hands to mould the concrete. Um, and she'll often mix it with pigments. So it, as I say... It looks to me like... It looked really like crazy paving to me, to be honest with you. Yeah, but, but, yeah. But, but obviously not. Not. I think there's a, an important part of the show is the video on the... Which acts as a kind of precursor to the exhibition that you can see on the website. And it kind of coordinates the work, I think. Yeah, um, I did wonder why that wasn't actually in the gallery. Is it, I mean, um, would, would it, do you think... Would it not have worked? I think it explicates the work in a way that I wouldn't really call it an artwork. Um, it's not massive, or I should say, it's not massively interesting in and of itself. And I do like Ruggerbeer's work, but the video doesn't. Right. I think I saw the video after I saw the show, and I, I think there's a sense of it made me think a lot about um, someone like Thamesmead or um, kind of very <laughs> particular uh, post-war housing estates that again were privatised in the late 70s yeah. and early 80s. It's a sort of documentary film which then she uses as a source perhaps for, yeah. for, the, for the sculpture. In Istanbul, I think they're flats in Istanbul. It's yeah. basically if you go to kind of uh, a housing estate that's largely been privatised you'll see people that personalise the face yes, of Yes, the way house. in which they do that. Yeah, so there's again this interesting okay. kind of Processing the environment, yes. you're kind of haptic. Yes, and, and with with um, the showroom show, yeah. which is actually in a housing estate, I would say, just near the market, <laughs> in a very bright yellow gallery, which yeah. I always find extraordinary. It's not eggy enough, in my opinion, the yellow. But it's, it's a very. Um, this is um, Folke Pisano's. Folke Pisano, yeah. Just, just, tell, tell me what you think of that show. So she's a Dutch artist. It's a bigger show of her, of her career to date in Britain. Um, it's basically a presentation of ongoing research. Um, I, thought, so I thought it was like a PhD, actually. It was. <laughs> I think... I think Having thought about the show since I wrote the review, I th- basically the show is called A Body in Crisis, and it's about the body undergoing particular stresses at historical moments. So it goes from the four humours, 
um, which is a kind of ancient Greek understanding of the body. Um, bodily flu- there's four bodily fluids, from what I remember, to um, changing notion of psychology in the 20th century. But I think that she treats sculpture a little bit like a body. Um, so it's, on, it's always provisional, contingent. It's kind of she bring, you know, every time she shows it, she changes it. So there's something that it kind of has a life, a life uh, in it in itself. That isn't the, art, the exhibition isn't the end point of the of, of the sculpture. In a it's sense. a rolling thing, is it yeah. for her? For her, I mean, next so next time she does a, another show, she may the project will have extended itself a bit more, but parts will be within that. Is that what you mean? It's, yeah, there's a lot of different pro- parts of the project. So the the, the sculpture exists both as uh, a display mechanism and a graphic. Science. I must admit, I didn't really understand this uh, under, this translation from research to a kind of formal abstraction. Um, I mean, I wonder whether it was a bit illustrational of an, of ideas, but I'm mean, not saying it succeeded. Mm. In, I, I mean, I found it really difficult, to, yeah. to be honest with you. I mean, I, it, it, it was a tough show to get in you, it, it at pre- any point. Nothing was really in letting you in, but I don't think it's about that. It presupposes a lot of... Um, uh, previous knowledge, I think. Yeah, of, I, I, um, felt, I felt that. You have to come to it with a, a kind of understanding. Probably you've read a bit of Foucault. Yeah, there's <laughs> a very, very soporific um, sound mm. uh, voice over voice. coming out, which is the artist. Mm. I did ask about that. It is the artist. Yeah. And you, but to stand there and listen to it for long, I mean, there's yeah. no chair provided. It, I thought it was really quite tough. Yeah, but, well, it but, makes you very aware of your own body yes. while walking around. Yes. And, and you also did um, Coulter Jacobson. At um, Corvi Mora Corvi Mora Gary, what what was that like? So to explain the uh, the installation, um, it was a series of collages, and on the far end of the gallery, he'd um, wallpapered the Sun and Daily Star t- uh, newspapers to the gallery, painted the midnight blue, and then splattered white paint on them. Well, as you do, as you do. <laughs> Um, and on top of that, he'd, he'd um, installed, uh, so he'd found uh, bits of card um, that he'd um, put magnifying glasses on, a magnifying glass on top sort of to burn, burn, burn marks. marks yeah. Yes. So I think there's a kind of formal tautology to the, the um, to the, the installation. So the, the kind of references to the kind of literal references to uh, astrology, the sun and the daily star, um, almost collaborating with the sun light to okay. ba- make the burn. So marks. you can read it in a quite word. Word literalism. I think so. Yeah. Exemplified, but it's but called ellipsis. The exhibition ellipsis obviously is the dots in the middle of a sentence that connotate absence. So you sort of project onto it. Right. So it made me think a lot about astrology. Yeah. Read, people that read the stars and. Um, you mentioned Schwitters in your review. There was well, some of the collages, I think, uh, a different body of work, really, but there was a reference to Schwitters in the uh, in the collages. Um, essentially, his work is very lyrical, poetic, working with materials, um, and it reminded me a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, sh- the collages that Schwitters was making when he came to Britain, which I understand that he would give out to people at the bus stop. So it often there's a kind of gift exchange happening with his work, I think. They're quite an influential man, Schwitters, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, well, listen, we're running out of time for the programme. We want to try and fit in one more um, review, which, which um, Bob did as well. Um, Bob, tell us about it. Well, it's, um, it's called The Ultimate Form. It was, uh, it's it's uh, finished, uh, but it was, it, it was on at the, uh, the uh, Hepworth in Wakefield, and uh, it was, uh, it's by Linda Sterling, uh, who is a collage, uh, collagist, an artist specialing in collage, and uh, she's a veteran of the old um, punk days. Uh, originally, she she's came to uh, prominence, or she was first seen, uh, doing f- fanzine illustrations, collage fanzine illustrations, and record sleeves, including um, the Buzzcocks Orgasm Addict, um, uh, 
she was she's very closely associated with Manchester, and um, in this latest uh, um, piece of work, she's basically re, she, she, she's reinvented herself a, a number of different times, and she's moved into uh, more formal art. Um, and performance as well, although she looks at, on everything as a form of collage. And this latest um, adventure really has been her, uh, her, her reaction to uh, working at the Hepworth and, and being inspired by Barbara Hepworth. And the um, result of it all was a, an exhibition of, of new collages, including light box uh, collages, which were, which were really good, actually. Were, and a lot of them were meditating on the idea of ballet because... Um, uh, Barbara Hepworth, uh, 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 one of her studios was a, was a, 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 um, a palais de danse. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, Linda is, uh, uh, used to collect uh, ballet magazines. Uh, and indeed, the, the whole thing uh, uh, culminated uh, in, in May in a, in a, a performance uh, uh, involving a ballet, which especially uh, commissioned by Northern Ballet, for Northern Ballet, and um, with um, uh, uh, dancers and with uh, uh, choreography uh, by, uh, um, oh, the m- music by uh, Stuart McCullum of Cinematic Orchestra. We, we played a bit when we started we the programme, ha- didn't and, we? And we hope to play some at the end. Yes. <laughs> and, um, uh, and Kenneth Tyndall choreographed the, the ballet. And, it's, uh, and uh, uh, the whole day, it, 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 it lasted for a, a sort of half a day, uh, it was was um, was really good fun actually, and um, but this is all it, her. It was open she, air outside. She was the, like, outside produ- producing it, was she really? Uh, or, or, or the Northern Ballet bit? Uh, well, it was a collaboration a between collaboration. her and and the Northern Ballet, yeah. and um, uh, it, uh, so what they were trying to do was to create a ballet out of uh, out of sculpture uh, as a response to to Barbara, Barbara Hepworth, which sounds quite strange because. Sculptures don't usually move about, but the way the, the dancers were choreographed was quite clever because they were uh, sort of slotting themselves together like solid objects, and then in the end, uh, at various points during during the ballet, they would adopt, they would be, they would be, they would come together in such complicated forms that it was a kind of sculpture, and then they'd have to be tear themselves apart. They'd be static at that point. It'd be, it'd be static momentarily, yes. but then they'd uh, then they'd move apart and. The, the sort of scissoring of legs was like it, it was supposed to evoke or reflect um, or echo the idea of, of Linda's scissors making a, a collage. And it, it was a fascinating thing to watch. And the other thing was that um, Linda's built this object called an octobase, which is a, an enormous double it's a, bass. It's an instrument. It's a musical instrument, but it's also a piece of sculpture because it's, it's meant to resemble a... A Hepworth sculpture, and her son Maxwell played the octobase um, along with this soundtrack, which we've heard a bit of and we hope to hear a bit more of in a minute. Um, and it, it makes a sort of very, very low frequency bass noise. Apparently, these things were invented in the 19th century to kind of add some to boost, boom, boost an orchestra to one of these massive or, or, orchestras that well it would if you had a huge sort of deep buzz underneath yes. something you wouldn't you wouldn't even yes. say hear it would you you would just make the whole thing feel fuller <laughs> and well it was the most extraordinary thing to watch i mean there were seven it was not the greatest weather in west york in your in yorkshire what, history what we're having now all the time basically it was it was it was blustery it was a bit cold the sun did come out but there was it 
if you were standing there, and there were about, I think, about 750 people there outside the Hepworth watching this extraordinary series of events, which really should have... I wanted it to, to, to move, actually. I think it should have pros, proceeded down the street into the centre of Wakefield. It would have been quite... Quite well, it was impressive. Anyway. Well, what did happen? You mentioned, did you mention a brass band? Didn't you? It was a brass band at the end, and um, there were some Northern Soul dancers um, dancing away to Northern Soul records, and uh, and there was a, a Sikh uh, tabla player, and um, uh, yes, it was it, it was it was it was a fascinating, and it, it, it was a kind of the whole thing came together as a kind of of collage because uh, there, there, you know there's music, there's fashion. There's popular culture, there's high culture, low culture, and uh, that's that's how she, uh, Linda sort of looks at the world. So it reflected her very well, by the sound of it. Yeah, I think so. I, I I'd like to, I'd like to have, I'd like to see it done again <laughs> because <laughs> and, you know it's the sort of thing that you could you you could you could do better maybe uh, 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 or you could improve on yeah say so take modern or somewhere but, I mean, but it doesn't yeah, say it wasn't well, well because it wasn't simply because of the weather yes and it didn't, it didn't have to be <clears throat> at wakefields necessarily I mean, it, well, it was obviously very good there though wasn't it it was it, 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 i mean in terms of its its way it linked to the hepworth angle for instance it, well, I think it was specifically, you know, yeah. it was it, it was about, it was about Barbara. I mean, Linda, Linda's very interesting to talk to about Barbara Hepworth because she kind of comes at Hepworth from really unusual angles. Like she's saying, "Oh, well, the day Barbara Hepworth died, uh, which was in 1975, um, Tammy Wynette was number one in the charts with Stand By Your Man." <laughs> have, have you ever noticed the similarity between Tammy Wynette's haircut? <laughs> And Barbara Hepworth's haircut, and she suddenly Fantastic. starts going off on a whole. Yeah, but that's perfectly legitimate. Yeah. But it's wonderfully yeah. legitimate, yes. yeah. and and, an, and another take on something because yeah. of who she is, which is which is great, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, listen. Um, thank you, Bob. Thank you, George. Thank um, you. We, we've had a packed and active program. Telephones, rushings ins and outs, coming from Manchester's first times on radios. <laughs> uh, a new engineer who's been marvellous, and um, he's now going to very happily push the button and give us some music so thank you for listening to Art Monthly Talk Show based on the June issue and we hope you'll come again and listen to the July issue 2013 see you guys thank you thank you <laughs>